I want to continue in our series we began last week on rejecting Jesus. And last week, if you remember, we talked about Mark chapter 6, where Jesus was rejected by his hometown. Now we're looking at Mark chapter 3, and we're going to talk about how Jesus was rejected by his own family. Now think for a moment as we begin what it, would, what it might have been like to be a part of Jesus' biological family. There would have been some unique challenges attached to that, I would think. I mean, what was it like to be Jesus' mother and to go through all that Mary went through, all the rumors that probably circulated about the circumstances surrounding his birth, the things that she saw that concerned her, the path she knew that he would take, what would it have been like to be her? We think about Jesus' trials through Jesus' eyes. Have you ever put yourself in the shoes of Mary? And we can take it a little too far. Uh, we don't pray through Mary as the Catholics do and consider her a mediator or some kind of special saint. But the Bible does give her a special place in the life of Jesus. One of Julie and my favorite songs is a song called Mary by Patty Griffin. There's a line in it which says, has Jesus, his relationship with Mary, discussed? Jesus says, Mother, I couldn't stay another day longer. Flies right by and leaves a kiss upon her face while angels are singing his praises in a blaze of glory. Mary stays behind and starts cleaning up the place. He left and she went back to life as normal, pretty much forgotten after Acts chapter 1. What was it like to have that life with him so short, cut off the way that it was? What was it like to be a mother? What was it like to be Jesus' brothers? I mean, you've heard of sibling rivalry, right? With just normal older brothers. What about having Jesus Christ as your brother? It must have been hard. There must have been some jealousy there. It must have been some suspicion even hostility? Well, we see from the scriptures here and there places where his family initially, initially rejected him. Later, they came to have faith in him. And that's our subject for this morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, where we'll spend most of our time. We'll look at some other passages as well. But we want to see the events that start to unfold for us in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, after Jesus named the 12 apostles. Mark says that he went home. That's the English Standard Version. Other translations says he went into a house. It's probably Jesus in Capernaum going to a house that had begun to be his base of operations. He had done this before in Galilee, gone into a house, started teaching, and it was very crowded in this house. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says that at this point, Jesus had attracted quite a following. If you look at it, he says, A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. That's a, a large geographical area. And this crowd had followed him 
presumably into Capernaum, into this house, and they were pressing him in. They were crammed in there. Luke says in his account of this, in Luke chapter 8, verse 19, that the crowd was so large it kept anyone else from getting in. It reminds me of Mark chapter 2, when the four men brought their friend who was a paralytic to be healed by Jesus. And they couldn't get into the house where Jesus was teaching, and so you'll remember they dug through the roof of that house. I wonder what the owner of that house thought about that. They dug through his roof and lowered their friend down so that he could be healed by Jesus. Similar circumstances here in Mark chapter 3. This great crowd had followed him into the house. They were pressing up against one another, pressing against him. Nobody else could get in. If you were late getting there, it was worse than the Leeds Moody football game. It was a crowd, very crowded there. Later, Mark says in verse 32 that they sat around him in a circle and this is when we are introduced to his family. And they come in together, and Mark says in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that when his family heard it, heard that this crowd was pressing him in in this house, and he was teaching and healing, when they heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, the word seize here is used in every other place to refer to an arrest. Whenever Herod arrested John the Baptist, that's the word that was used. Whenever they came to arrest Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, this is the same word. So they were coercing, I guess it's the gentlest way we could put it, coercing him to get out of the house and come with him so they could take care of him and take him to where he needed to be. They said he is out of his mind. Literal way of putting that, according to the language used there, is that he was standing outside of himself. We might say he was beside himself. This term is used uh, several times. Uh, one time Paul is before Festus, uh, pro-counselor for Rome, and Festus tells him, you are out of your mind. He says... Your great learning has driven you mad. Same language used there. Paul says in the second Corinthian letter that if we are out of our minds, it's for you. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Same language there. So they thought he was crazy. They didn't think he was operating according to rational purposes. And they were going to take care of him. Now you might be quick to judge, but think about what was going on. According to Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus and his disciples had not even taken time to eat. They were probably worried about his health. They were probably worried about his not getting any rest, hours of teaching. The fatigue was probably showing dark circles under his eyes, not enough sleep. They were worried about his security. Uh, between Mark 3.21 and Mark 3.31, you have this, this section that we're going to go over next week where he was rejected by the religious authorities. Now, these were very powerful people, and they were making some very serious accusations. He casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons, by the power of Beelzebul. They said also that uh, he has an unclean spirit. 
You imagine people that powerful making those kinds of accusations. Jesus was in danger. In fact, eventually these were the very people who would kill him. On a cross, by crucifixion, on Calvary. They must have also been worried about their reputation. You might remember last week when we talked about the rejection of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. People asked, is this not the carpenter? And is, is he not Mary's son? And Are those not his four brothers? And are those not his sisters? What Jesus was doing would forever change not just the way the world looked at him, but the way everyone looked at his family as well. Have you ever been embarrassed by a family member? Ever wanted to do something about it? Maybe you can see their point of view. They had some concerns. And they tried to seize him. Understandable concerns notwithstanding, here's what was really going on. This was rejection disguising itself as love. On the surface, they were the concerned, caring family, but really inside, they were against him because what they were doing was trying to keep him from his mission to save the world by sacrificing himself. That's what Jesus was all about, and they were standing in the way of that. It was rejection disguising itself as love. Let's take a closer look at this rejection, starting with Mary. You know, I think Mary may have been the earliest believer in Christ. I don't know what you think about that, but try to come up with someone who believed in him before the mother who conceived him. I think she probably was the earliest believer because the angel Gabriel came to her, although she was a virgin, and told her she was going to bear the Son of God. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we read that Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She's greatly troubled by the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And he said, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is how her pregnancy started. Do you think she ever forgot that? Do you think it was on her mind when she saw that house crammed full of people? Later she goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, who became the mother of John the Baptist. And Luke describes that visit for us in Luke chapter 1, verse 39, saying, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, entered the house of Zechariah, and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, who would be John, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me, 
that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Do you think Mary thought about that for the rest of her life, the prophecy of her relative Elizabeth? Mary sang a song. It's recorded for us in Luke 1, 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She heard the testimony of the shepherds and later of the wise men. When she and Joseph brought the child she had born to the temple to dedicate him in accordance with the law of Moses, they were met by a man named Simeon, an old man who had been waiting for the redemption of Israel. And when he saw them come in with the child, he pronounced that the Savior was here. Do you think she remembered that? A prophetess named Anna came and also blessed the child. Mothers, would you ever forget these words spoken about your child, unborn or as an infant? I don't see how she could have forgotten it. When Jesus was 12, they lost him on a trip back from Jerusalem. After searching for him for three days, where did they find him? They found him in the temple, sitting with the, the scribes, asking them, listening to them and asking questions. Very unusual behavior for a 12-year-old boy. I believe Mary was the first believer in Jesus. But despite her knowledge and belief in her son, she kept her silence. Twice during a description of all these amazing events during his childhood, Luke says this. This is in Luke chapter 2, verses 19, and then later in verse 51, that she treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, what does that mean? It sounds very nice. Because treasure is something, number one, that you value, right? So if she treasured them, then she valued all these things. And I think that is definitely one of the applications of that statement. But another meaning of the word treasure is to hide something to keep it secure. Maybe to protect it. It means that she kept it quiet. Her motives for that, we can only guess. Maybe it's because she didn't know what to make of it. Maybe it was because she was afraid to tell others because of what might happen to her son if people found out all of these wonderful things. He wouldn't have a normal childhood. He wouldn't get to be a normal little boy. He wouldn't grow up to be a normal carpenter, to have the kind of life that she dreamed for her son, a simple life where he wasn't in jeopardy all the time. Life wouldn't be disruptive and in chaos, so she kept it quiet. So her rejection, if you want to call it that, wasn't typical. It might have come out of good motives to protect a child, but still, we find her in Mark chapter 3, getting in the way of Jesus' mission, trying to seize him while he was teaching. The brothers also rejected him. Let's look into that a little more deeply, going to John chapter 7. 
John gives us a little detail on his brother's rejection. You see, it's around the time of the Feast of Booths, and Jesus always went down and celebrated the feasts in Jerusalem from his home in Galilee. But it had gotten dangerous for him to go to Jerusalem because the Jews down there were seeking to kill him. So he's grappling with the decision over whether or not to go. And John tells us in John chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, that his brothers weighed in on that decision. Here's what they said. This is verse 3. Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if you just read that, you might think they believe in him, right? Uh, maybe they're encouraging him to go and, and show the world who he is. But look at the next verse, John chapter 7, verse 5. What does it say? Not even his brothers believed in him. Their words were dripping with sarcasm. They didn't believe in him. They didn't think his life was in danger. They didn't think he was working any marvelous works. They were mocking him for having disciples. This is more than sibling rivalry. We don't know exactly what to make of it, but it certainly wasn't belief, and it was rejection. They weren't followers. And so let's go back to Mark chapter 3. Jesus is teaching in this house. His mothers and brothers tried to seize him. They think he's out of his mind. And there's a critical moment here where Jesus is asked to choose between his disciples and his family. What will he do? Mark tells us what he did in Mark chapter 3, verses 33 and following. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. His family rejected him. And so he had to reject them. They said, it's your mission or us. And he chose the mission to save the world. He pronounced his physical family as secondary to his spiritual family. He said, my true family is this. My primary family is this. Number one, it's spiritual. A relationship with God, not genetics, determined Christ's primary family. In another place, Peter complained about having to leave his family and associations and previous life, his career as a fisherman. Mark records this in Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter says, see, we have left all to follow you. Can't you see, Jesus, that we've given everything up? Maybe something had recently happened. Peter tried to locate a friend or tried to find a family member and they wouldn't have anything to do with him. But he was clearly frustrated at this point. What did Jesus say? Mark 10, 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers 
or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What is he saying? You may have to give up your physical family, but there is a wonderful spiritual family that is primary to that. Full of mothers and brothers and sisters and a father who is in heaven. And those were radical words in Jesus' day. Especially among the Jews whose biology was very important to them. These are the people who kept up with genealogies. You read them all through the Old and New Testaments. These are the people who, they didn't have to uh, get one of those internet programs to find out their, their ancestry. They didn't have to go to Ancestry.com, right? Because uh, their forefathers had kept track of all of that. They knew exactly who they were, who their grandparents and great-grandparents were, what tribe they came from, what happened with all of their ancestors. It was so very important for them to prove that they were Jewish, that they descended from Abraham. It was a badge of honor to them. These were radical words where Jesus says, it's not about your physical family. First and foremost, it's about your spiritual family. He was saying, you are more than your DNA. And he was also saying, you are not excused by your DNA. Mark wrote to a Roman audience. Gentiles. So imagine what these words meant to Gentiles who didn't have the genealogies tracing back to Abraham. It must have been an encouragement to them to hear Jesus say, you don't have to be a part of my physical family to be a part of my spiritual family. There are people today who could really use that word of encouragement People who didn't have the advantage of a good physical family. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you get really discouraged sometimes because you don't have parents who care, who brought you upright, who you can call. Maybe they're gone. Maybe you don't have brothers and sisters in the faith. Remember what Jesus told Peter. You have a hundredfold now in this time. Mothers and brothers and sisters. Your family is spiritual. Number two, it's eternal. Returning to Mark chapter 10, verse 30. And in the age to come, he told Peter, eternal life. Even the best families on earth are divided by death. Only Jesus' family stays united from this world into the next. And then finally, he says, going back to Mark 3, verses 33 through 35, this family is characterized by obedience. Obedience matters more than allegiance. What matters more is your obedience to God, more than your loyalty to your physical family. If you want to see how the family of Jesus is defined, look for those who obey the will of God. His family was first and foremost spiritual, eternal, and obedient. And those were the people he was sent to earth for. 
And so you can see that Jesus spoke from experience when he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 36, that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. If you have been rejected by your family because of your faith, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. How many people have walked away from God because their family discouraged them? Their family thought they were out of their mind. Their family accused them of, of being crazy for walking away from whatever traditions they were brought up in. How could you do this to us? You betrayed us. How many people have failed to follow Christ because of their family? Jesus knows what it feels like to be rejected by your family. And that's why as a church, we've got to be loving. We've got to be united. We've got to be a community for folks who are outsiders, who are leaving their old associations behind to follow Christ. Jesus doesn't just say, stay where you are and privately entertain the notion that I'm the son of God. He says, turn your life upside down and follow me. Leave your old way of life and come into a new way of life. Now, do you know how hard that is for some people? I was raised in the church. I've been among Christians my whole life. I didn't have to make that sacrifice. Have you? I mean, we need to have a little sympathy for folks that are coming out of families or out of neighborhoods and communities that don't follow Christ, and they're walking into a brand new way of life. We need to watch out for newcomers to the faith new converts, and let them know that we are their family. Because folks, if we don't do that, and we just stay in cliques and close ourselves off from people that are different from us, or people who are new, or people that we don't know, if we avoid those awkward conversations because we just don't know what to say, how are we expecting people to leave an old way of life and walk into isolation. How do we think they're going to do that? They're not going to do that. That's not God's plan. The church is a spiritual family. Mothers, brothers, sisters, and a father in heaven. You know, last week when I started this series, I said the reason why we're studying the rejections of Jesus is because... The rejections are just as strong a testimony to his claims to be the Son of God as the approvals. And this is another case. Eventually, Mary opened her heart and released that secret faith she'd been treasuring up all those years. And after all the apostles deserted him except for John, after Judas's kiss and Simon Peter's threefold denial. Four women followed Jesus' cross up Calvary's hill. And one of them was his mother, Mary. John was there as well. And as he hung there, dying with the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders, he saw his mother and John, the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, and he said to her, woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, behold your mother. And John took her 
and cared from her, cared for her from that day forward. Now, is this just about making sure that his mother was cared for? Don't forget, she had four sons and at least two daughters, maybe more. She had a physical family beyond Jesus who were capable of taking care of her. He was pointing out that they were family now, a spiritual family. His brothers also eventually became believers. James and Jude, two of the brothers, wrote inspired epistles. And it's very interesting when you look at the opening of each letter, they address it. You know, this morning in uh, our study of Colossians, we talked about how Paul introduced himself to the Colossians as an apostle. How did James and Jude introduce themselves? A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they spoke of their brother in the flesh. James called him the Lord of glory. James chapter 2, verse 1. Jude calls him our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, Jude 4. In the book of Acts, in the book of Galatians, you can see how James became this great leader in the church, an elder of the church at Jerusalem, a spokesman for the whole group. He ruled alongside the apostles in that place. Paul went to Jerusalem and met the apostles and the elders there, and he called James one of the pillars of the church. When James had before mocked Jesus. You see, what happened was their brother had died, and they buried him. And then they saw him alive. And that changed everything. He rose from the dead. And they realized that their skepticism and their superficial concerns had all been misplaced. That it was true. Their brother was the son of God. Look at Acts chapter 1. Luke begins Acts describing Jesus' ascension into heaven after his resurrection. And then he identifies the small group of disciples who were still left after all the persecution, after everything that happened. There was a group of 120 disciples there, and he lists their names. Not all 120 of them, but ones that we might recognize, the 12 apostles, Acts 1.13, Peter and John and James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, 11 minus Judas Iscariot. And then he adds this, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now tell me, that the rejections of Christ disprove his claims. These people had rejected him, and now why were they giving everything up to be counted among his disciples? 
because he rose from the dead. And he was who he claimed to be. And it's all true that he was the son of God. Eventually, the truth comes out. And when rejection is in, in, in accordance with the truth, it can be a powerful deterrence. But when rejection is out of line with the truth, that rejection will, will eventually show itself to be foolish, unfounded, and the rejection will testify to the truth itself. And we see this with his family. We see this with his hometown. And every other case of rejection we'll look at, every time it'll wind up showing us that despite the best efforts of Jesus' enemies, they either become believers themselves or they're shown to be fools. And so as we bring this to a close, let me ask you, have you been rejecting Christ? Have you accepted him as the Son of God? Have you made that confession, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And have you demonstrated the gospel through baptism to walk in newness of life? As a Christian, do your actions and attitudes and choices reflect the life of Christ? Do you walk with him? Is your life in accordance with the gospel? Or by your life have you been rejecting him? And do you need to be restored? Do you need to come back? We're going to sing an invitation song. And we're encouraging you to walk with Christ, not to reject him, but to let your life be a testimony to the claim that he's the Son of God. If you need any help with that, don't hesitate. Please come right now as we stand together and as we sing.